Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Commitment Matters. Okay, super quick intro today so you can get straight to listening to a fantastic guest who dives down deep into a fascinating topic. Rich Horn is with us today. He is the co-managing partner of Garris Horn, LLC. Rich was formerly with the CFPB. You probably got to know him during the TRID implementation because he led the final rulemaking for the integrated disclosures and the design of the LE and CD forms. Rich recently crafted the successful defense of Townstone Mortgage and prevailed in court against the CFPB in a case that really pushed the boundaries of administrative authority, discrimination, as well as the interpretation and application of existing laws. Now, quick note about today's conversation. Discrimination is discussed as part of the background of the law and of certain facts, both actual and alleged, of this case. So if that's problematic for you, please take care while listening. Also, in the days since we recorded this, the CFPB has signaled an appeal to Townstone. So this story isn't over yet. Rich has more work to do. By the way, Rich and I will discuss that development and other CFPB-related topics at the National Settlement Services Summit in June. So if you haven't yet made your plans to attend, please come join us in St. Louis. In the meantime, we thought you'd like to hear how some folks in industry are working to keep the CFPB on the straight and narrow. So please enjoy my conversation with the thoughtful, principled, and prevailing Mr. Rich Horn. Well, Rich, welcome to Commitment Matters. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you so much, Mary. Well, so I have to say for the record a couple of things. One, we go back, what, 12, 13 years now? It's probably about that. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll process that information later. Um, and we should also say, I think, that while you worked at the CFPB, including on Dodd-Frank issues, you're now in private practice. So can we all just agree at the beginning that you're neither some sort of jackbooted government thug, nor <laughs> are you a wild-eyed, 100% libertarian that's sort of brandishing clubs, playing whack-a-mole in you? Anywhere the government pokes its head up? Are you somewhere in between those two far apart goalposts, Rich? <laughs> so, somewhere <laughs> in between there. <laughs> I won't well, reveal which one no, I'm closest I don't, to. <laughs> I don't want you to, but I, I just feel like a lot of discussions these days require that sort of foundation setting kind of right off the top. So everybody can just lean forward and enjoy listening without sort of setting up on alert and constantly trying to sniff out some sort of flagrant agenda or bias on a topic. Yeah, the only bias I have is towards my clients representing them right now zealously since I'm in uh, private practice. That's really where my head is at right now. Having the government experience that I do from the CFPB as well as the FDIC helps me understand where the government's coming from in an enforce or supervisory matter as well, or even in rulemakings when I'm drafting comment letters, clients to the regulators. Yeah, really valuable experience for sure. Yeah. Well, and I want listeners to know that I've been after Rich to come on the podcast for a while, but in fairness, Rich said, hey, as soon as this Townstone case wraps up, I'm there and here you are, <laughs> which is super exciting because the motion to dismiss against Townstone and the CFPB was granted, which is a huge win. 
So now that we have everyone's attention about the outcome, let's kind of go back a little bit if we can and take it from the beginning. Let's talk about the history a little bit. Who's Townstone Mortgage? What's the history of this case? What were they doing that got them on the CFPB's radar? Yeah, this is a great time to talk, Mary, because this case has such an impact on the industry that I think it's really important for folks to to know about it, not just about the fact that, oh, well, you know, somebody beat the CFPB. I mean, that's always interesting that the CFPB itself can be beat mm-hmm. in court. But to understand this legal theory that the CFPB and other agencies are are using, as well as to understand how the CFPB was beat, what the legal arguments were. So I'll back up a little bit and describe this legal theory that the CFPB and other regulators have been using. It's something that you'll hear the government refer to as redlining. And I think we all know what traditionally people refer to as redlining, where a bank draws a red line around a particular neighborhood and says, hey, we're not going to lend in this neighborhood. If there is an applicant who comes in from that neighborhood to the bank, they'll reject the application. Traditionally, that theory has, has dealt with how banks treat actual applicants. But over the past few uh, decades, since the 90s, the concept of redlining has morphed into not how banks treat actual applicants, but where they market and where they place their branches. And so the government started calling it, actually just a couple of years ago, they've called it modern day redlining to kind of differentiate the two a little bit. But actually I refer to this as marketing discrimination because it doesn't deal with any actual applicants in theory. It's really all just about where the bank is marketing. The Townstone case is important because that's the first time this legal theory has been used against not a bank, but a non-bank mortgage company, a non-depository lender. Townstone itself is a tiny, tiny mortgage company in Chicago, a one-office company. To give you an idea how small they were at any one point during the years in question, the years at issue in the CFB's lawsuit, they only had about six LOs, uh, loan officers. And so mm-hmm. they were they were tiny, tiny, tiny. And that really just goes to show you that the government's willing, and they are using this legal theory against now, not just banks, but also non-banks of all sizes. And they can use this theory in investigations or in examinations. This being used by DOJ, the federal banking agencies, CFPB, and also state agencies and state AGs can use this theory as well. On the federal government side, though, for CFPB and DOJ and the banking agencies, the, the legal underpinning for this theory are two fair lending statutes. One is the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, ECOA for short, and the other is the Fair Housing Act, or FHA for short. ECOA is a a statute that prohibits discrimination against applicants, and I'll come back to that, in any aspect of a credit transaction. And that's for all consumer credit transactions or credit transactions generally, actually. So it's it's a broad statute that applies to all forms of credit. The Fair Housing Act applies to real estate-related transactions, so mortgages. And that statute prohibits discrimination against uh, persons and making available mortgage loans. And so there's, there's a little difference between those two statutes and their statutory language. But 
The important thing to note is that the CFPB only has authority under ECOA uh, the, of the two fair lending statutes. The Dodd-Frank Act, which created the CFPB, only gave the CFPB authority under ECOA, not the Fair Housing Act. And so the uh, Townstone lawsuit was brought against Townstone solely under ECOA. And we'll come back to that. That That's kind of important. But uh, mm-hmm. before I do that, I want to give some idea of what these cases look like. Because, you know, I mentioned it deals with where the lender is marketing and the location of their bank branches. And I'll, I'll describe some of these cases. The first case of these types was actually brought in 1994 by the DOJ against a bank called Chevy Chase. It was a bank in D.C. Mm-hmm. And the DOJ's theory was... Well, the bank is only marketing in the majority white areas of D.C. and not in the minority or African-American areas of D.C. And the DOJ looked at the bank's assessment area under the Community Reinvestment Act. You know, under the CRA, Community Reinvestment Act, banks have to lend, they're obligated to lend to low to moderate income areas, LMI areas, and and they're graded on that or assessed on that based on a market area that they themselves draw. And so what DOJ started to do in this case and subsequent cases for banks is look at that assessment area. And if they saw that the bank was excluding a minority neighborhood, they would call that out in these cases and say, well, you know, they, they drew their, their assessment area under the CRA to exclude this majority minority neighborhood. And so the assessment area looks like a donut or a horseshoe or a croissant. (laughs) Name your pastry. It looks like that. So so they look at the CRA assessment area. And I think if you look at the past cases against banks, in most of them, up until just a couple of years ago, they bring that out as a fact. They'll look at the location of the bank branches. If all of the bank branches or the majority of the bank branches are in our majority white areas, they'll note that. And they did that in Chevy Chase. They looked at the Chevy Chase Bank's CRA assessment area, location of their bank branches. They also looked at the demographics of the loan officers and said, well, only five of the 200 and change loan officers of Chevy Chase were African-American. And so that's a, a fact that they brought up about the bank's marketing. And then they said that the the bank rarely advertised in African-American-oriented media, newspapers, radio stations, and the like. And so they brought up all that those facts about the, how the bank's marketing really wasn't reaching the African-American population in, in D.C. They also looked at the bank's Humda data. And this is a really important mm-hmm. a part of these cases. In Chevy Chase and subsequent cases, they looked at the, the Humda data to say, well, the bank's getting a much lower percentage of applications and originations from the majority minority census tracts in the market area, in this case, D.C., than its peer lenders. What they'll do is a statistical analysis. They'll take a bunch of peer lenders, and peer lenders is a concept that's been created by these agencies. That's not really well-defined. It's it's defined only in informal guidance, not in the statute or the regulation. It's just something mm-hmm. that's been created to mean essentially lenders that have half to two times the same volume of the target lender. So 50% to 200% the same volume in that market area. And they compare the target lender against the average of those peer lenders and say, well, if, if 
the target lenders' percentage of applications and originations from the majority minority areas is statistically significantly lower than the average of the peer lenders, then that's evidence that this bank is discriminating and redlining the majority minority areas. In this case, that's what they did in Chevy Chase. So, and do they give sort of a threshold for that delta about the significantly varying from the peer banks? So in the cases against banks and in in Townstone, what they've said is you're statistically significantly lower than the average of the peer lenders. And they'll actually look at another threshold, which is if you're if the average of the peer lenders or are a certain number of times greater than the target lender. So if the percentage of the target lender is like one percent, but the average of the peers is five percent, they'll say, well, the peer lenders are generating applications and originations like, you know, five times the rate the target lender. So they'll also look at the the delta between the percentages as well. Mm-hmm. So it's a great question. Okay, good. And that's how they build these cases. I will say two things about that. One is the government pleads these cases as disparate treatment cases under the fair lending statutes, not disparate impact. And that's important to note because disparate impact is a theory of discrimination that doesn't require evidence of intent. It just requires a disproportionate impact and some kind of neutral policy. But because these cases are pled as disparate treatment cases that require evidence of intent, that's why the government brings up the facts about the bank's marketing, because Mm -hmm. they want to show that the bank had some, or the lender had some intent to avoid the minority areas of their market area. And it's very difficult to find actual evidence of intent. You're not going to find emails that say, hey, let's avoid these minority areas. That's just, that emails, (laughs) you're just not going to find it in most cases. So they pick out these facts about the CRA assessment area and the location of the bank branches to, to show circumstantial evidence. And so the facts about where the bank is marketing and the demographics of the loan officers, the office locations, that's all circumstantial evidence of an intent to discriminate. The Humda data is really where these cases are built from, though. The Humda data is how the government identifies the targets. So they'll look at the Humda data for a particular market area. They'll pick out which lenders have the lowest percentage of applications and originations in that market, and then start start looking at them and say, well, let's figure out why and see if we can find some facts to support theory. And so they're built from the Humda data up. It's like the Humda data is a foundation, but they know that they have to show some circumstantial evidence of intent. So that's where the examination or the investigation comes in, where they they ask the, the lender for uh, all this information about their marketing strategy, their office locations, demographics of their loan officers, and emails. And that's how all of these cases look. I mean, if, if you look at the most recent cases, they all follow the similar the similar fact pattern. A couple cases recently have added another fact about the, the bank's marketing, which is Cadence Bank from uh, 2021, which was a DOJ case. And I think our, another recent one, the government's also used the fact that the bank is in an area that has a Hispanic population and the bank wasn't marketing in Spanish or didn't have Spanish-speaking LOs or or those kinds of services available to what the government calls limited English proficiency customers, LEP customers, you know, customers that don't speak English, that maybe um, speak Spanish. And so the, the government's also started using that fact as well. And so that's kind of the general 
description Lay of what of this lane, legal yeah. theory is. Yeah. I'll pause there to see if we have any questions about it before I dive into the town zone facts. Well, I, I mean, I feel like there's a couple of rabbit holes we could go down if, if we wanted to quibble or understand more or find a, some minor flaws with the logic. But so far, I think nobody's going to have too much of a of a hard time getting okay with those concepts. The concept that, yeah, sometimes you have bad, I'm using air quotes, bad results, but then you have to, and in the hum to data, data is always a good place to start, but you don't know if it was an accidental result or an intentional result. So then you kind of got to go to the instant replay, right? You got to go to some other things and start looking around and, and finding out. And some of these things that are required for that second level analysis can be very subjective. It could be intentional discrimination or it could just be a manager who doesn't have any idea how to align actions and desired outcomes to an effective marketing plan. You don't know. So you have to go investigate, right? I think everybody's probably so far so good on that. Yeah, exactly. And there's other facts too that they've brought up. Uh, CFB in report that they issue periodically called supervisory highlights has brought up that in exams, they're even looking at lenders' marketing materials. So flyers that they use at open houses and on their website, if all the models that depict their loan officers or the actual pictures of the loan officers are all white, CFB has cited that as evidence of intent to discriminate or, you know, models in their advertisements on their website, if they're all white, CFB has picked that out as a fact of intent to discriminate as well. I think, like you said, it really does in part depend on how much a lender is focusing on this issue, if they understand that there's risk here, uh, because there could be no intent to discriminate. But the fact that the CFB is using all of these facts against lenders, I think the CFB expects lenders to, to take up these actions kind of affirmatively. So there's this expectation of the regulators that, that lenders are doing this. And so you know, going back to the you know the discussion about ECOA itself, the statute that CFB uses, all ECOA says is creditors shall not discriminate on the basis of race or ethnicity or other prohibited bases. It doesn't say that lenders have to do X, Y, Z. There's no affirmative requirements in ECOA with respect to that. It doesn't say lenders have to hire a diverse loan officer staff or have diverse models in their marketing or place offices in majority minority areas. And nothing in the statute that says this, but this is the way that the regulators are interpreting that one shall not discriminate statement. So there could be no intent by a lender to discriminate. They might just be, you know, putting offices where they have loan officers living because they want people to have a short commute. Or or they could just be hiring people by word of mouth without a recruitment program and they all just happen to be white and they put their pictures up on their website. There could be no intent to discriminate, but what CFPB and other regulators are doing is saying, well, that's not enough. We're interpreting the statute to require you to do more than that. And so there's this real distinction between are they really trying to ferret out an intent to discriminate, or are they trying to create affirmative obligations under the statute? And I think it's the latter. And the Townstone case really shows that extremely well, because Townstone was, a, like, as I mentioned at the outset, a tiny, tiny, tiny lender in Chicago. They had one office that actually happened to be an area with a substantial 
percentage of minorities. The owner of Townstone has lived on the south side of Chicago himself for a long time. And this lender did not, they weren't your typical mortgage company that relied on referrals from realtors for all of their business. They actually marketed directly to consumers. And that's what they did. And and so to do that, they had um, radio, a radio show in Chicago on AM radio every Saturday morning from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. You can question the wisdom of that because how many people are listening to AM, AM radio, radio these days? <laughs> Saturday morning, yeah, yes. <laughs> early in the morning? They were smart and had uh, like 30-second advertisements on the AM sports stations as well because I think the, the listenership for the sports stations is still pretty good and and mm-hmm. but they you know they were a tiny lender they only had six LOs at any one point actually I should mention this the year there's a CFB lawsuit the CFB filed this suit in 2020 against Townstone and the years in question were 2014 to 2017 so this, these okay. four years at any one point time at any one point in time during these four years Townstone only had about six loan officers. And the facts that the CFB brought up in this case, they looked at the Humda data, as I mentioned, that's that's something they always bring up in these cases. But the facts were that, you know, out of those six loan officers, uh, none of them were African-American. Well, I should mention that Townstone actually had diverse loan officer staff. They had a Hispanic loan officer for a while. They had an Asian loan officer. They just didn't happen to have an African-American loan officer. They didn't have a recruiting program, <laughs> you know. They were just a tiny lender bringing people on word of mouth, but that you know that wasn't enough for CFPB. Right. Um, they said that Townstone didn't market specifically to in African American oriented media, um, and then the CFPB looked at that radio show that I mentioned. Yeah, this one-hour show. It was every Saturday morning from 2014 to 2017. So there are hundreds and hundreds of hours of broadcasting, and the CFB picked out about five minutes of airtime, about five short statements that, that made up about five minutes of airtime, and said, "Well, those five short statements would discourage African Americans on the South Side of Chicago." And, and let's talk about the nature or the specifics of what those were, because it's not. Like they were rehashing their night at the Klan rally the night before, right? I mean, well, yeah, I think yeah, it's important right. to to <laughs> say what the state, what the actions and statements were that were concerning to the bureau. Yeah, these were, as I mentioned, I mean, this is a local lender. They all live in Chicago. The owner lives on the south side of Chicago, or used to up until a, a year or two ago. You can't talk about mortgages on AM radio for a whole hour or else the, you know, the two people who are listening in will, oh, will tune out, right? They're gone, yeah. Yeah. So you got to talk about, you know, interesting so, stuff to keep your I'll listeners. Bet he talked about the White Sox piece of well, South Side boy. Yeah, White Sox, like all sports. Actually, he's a big sports mm-hmm. fan. That's uh, oh, good. Uh, so I think partly how they, they knew about, you know, advertising on the AM sports stations, mm-hmm. right? So you talk about that. They talk about even, you know, non-sports stuff. We talk about what's going on in national and local politics. Um, that's mm-hmm. also, if you're on an AM radio station, AM talk <laughs> radio station, you got to talk some politics, right? Because that's yeah, who the listenership is. Yep, exactly. And so these statements dealt with were portions of the show that, you know, we're talking about local, political, or national political, and societal issues. Uh, one of the statements was about the high crime rate on the south side of Chicago and the statement in support of the police. I think the owner 
said something like the police are the only people keeping the South Side from becoming a war zone. And this is from 2014 to 2017, where dozens of people are being shot every weekend on the South Side of Chicago. So obviously that's something who pe- people who live on the South Side of Chicago or in Chicago would talk about. Another statement was actually, it's funny, this was a segment of the show where they were trying to encourage younger people to buy in transitional neighborhoods. And the owner was talking about how when he lived in the South Side of Chicago in the 90s, so you know when it's definitely transitional, there were no grocery stores around. It was uh, what what so- sociologists actually call you know societal problem called uh, food deserts. Food you deserts, know? yeah. So it's something that the owner was talking about, and how everybody had to travel far to the one grocery store around, and it was a tiny, tiny store. It was really not well kept because it was the only store around, and so they didn't have to care you know care about the store at all because. They were the only, you know, show in town. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so he talked about that and he said that this store was, it was in the Jewel Osco grocery store chain, which is a grocery store chain in the area. And he said that people who lived there in the 90s used to call this store the Jungle Jewel because it was the only store around in the concrete jungle, right? Right. And so the CFAB... Uh, picked at both of those statements and the other statements were, which you know, were also about the the crime rate in this in the South Side of Chicago, and said that those statements would discourage African Americans on the South Side of Chicago. It, for example, for the Jungle Jewel statement, the CFPB's complaint said the word jungle would discourage African Americans calling the South Side a war zone, would discourage African Americans from applying for credit to Townstone. And it's interesting because one, we did research on the term Jungle Jewel. It's a historical fact that that's what people call the grocery store. If you look at a Yelp reviews that you can still find them online, they refer to the store as the Jungle Jewel. And people kind of describe the store the same way that the owner of Townstone did, that it was a small place a lot of people in there. It was not well kept. Uh, we found a blog post from an African-American female blogger who also described the Jungle Jewel as in the same way, saying she hates to go to the Jungle Jewel. It was a terrible store. There were always street crazies in the aisle, stuff like that, she, you know, describing mm-hmm. a bad experience at the store. So it was really like totally in line with what the owner of Townstone said. The other And statement- operatively, he was saying, when I lived there, this was the case. That's no longer the case, folks. Yeah, exactly. Things are better. He was encouraging. Encouraging people to buy in the area. That's what the whole segment was about. (laughs) And the (laughs) CFB turned it around and said, well, no, if you use the word jungle, you're discouraging. So actually, you know, as as you know, Mary, I led the trade rule when I was at the CFPB. I'm no longer at the CFPB. And so, you know, you don't have to worry about me. going after your listeners anymore, but uh, I'm I'm ready to defend them in private practice. But uh, my CFB experience was valuable, as I also mentioned at the outset, because it gave me a lot of experience on how the government thinks. So I actually used one of the government's tools against them. I said, well, I did a lot of consumer testing when I was at the CFPB on the TRID forms. As you know, we'd always talk Mm -hmm. about the consumer testing results. And so I said, well, let's use that tool on these statements that the CFB has picked out. And actually, let's go and use the company that the CFB used for consumer testing. So we we hired uh, Kleiman Communication Group, which the CFB used mm-hmm. for the consumer testing on the TRID forms, which is now known as Kingsley Kleiman Group. And they took these statements and they didn't just 
take the one, like one or two words that the CFPB picked out in their complaint. They actually took four minutes before and four minutes after each statement. And so they put them in context of the larger discussion mm-hmm. and played them for actual, actual African-Americans on the South Side of Chicago and consumer testing site. And the participants at the testing, nobody was offended by them. And actually all of the Participants said that they would recommend Townstone to their family and friends, and a number of them actually agreed with the statements, like about the Jungle Jewel statement. One guy said, oh, yeah, I know that store. That was a crazy place, basically agreeing with with the owner of Townstone. And a number of the participants actually asked for Townstone's information on the spot because they said, hey, this guy actually knows our neighborhood real he well. We can, <laughs> he gets it. He can help me find a place and, you know, get me alone. This is great. So the actual response to the show, even these statements that the CFPB alleged, you know, said was allegedly uh, discouraging, actually encouraged <laughs> the <laughs> participants <laughs> at testing to apply to Townstone. So the exact opposite result. And we told the CFPB this during the course of the investigation. We said, look, you know, you you guys are saying this is discouraging, but our results show that this is encouraging people. They like the show. They want to apply to Townstone. You guys are wrong. And we actually did our own analysis of the Humda data for Townstone as well and said, uh, which showed that the you know, Townstone's Humda data was, was actually pretty good. They were beating multiple of their peer lenders in getting originations and applications from the south side of Chicago. So the actual facts were very different yeah. when you dug in to what the CFB was alleging. And the CFB didn't care. So they <laughs> basically mm-hmm. filed suit in 2020 against Townstone. Another piece of a response to the CFB's investigation was on the law. So as I mentioned before, ECOA only says that creditors are prohibited against prohibited against discriminating, I should say, against mm-hmm. applicants. And the statute defines that as people who've actually applied for credit. Well, the CFB's lawsuit, like all these other past cases like Chevy Chase, like the Cadence Bank case I mentioned, was all about um, b- people who haven't applied. People who who just you know maybe have would have seen Townsend's marketing or heard their radio show or you know just just kind of people who might not have even heard Townsend's name. They're, they're basically what the CFB is saying in its lawsuit and in other past lawsuits of this ilk is that basically this lender is discriminating by by not marketing enough or well enough to this particular population, even though the they're. Area. The loan applications were not out of whack, and they did not deny any loan applications there were, on, yeah, as there a was, result. Yeah, there was no no actual applicant that CFB cited in its complaint. There was no the complaints of discrimination to Townstone or to CFB or to any state regulators. So there's no evidence that Townstone actually discriminated against any particular applicant. This is all based on the radio show, the Humda data, and the fact that Townstone didn't have um, any African-American LOs. And so I, you know, I looked at the statute and said, what? Well, the statute doesn't say anything about this. The statute says you can't you, you can't discriminate against applicants. But, and as I mentioned, the CFB, this, the CFB was the only agency that sued Townsend. So this case could only deal with ECOA because that's the CFB's only fair lending statute that they have. 
right now they're trying to expand it UDAP to include discrimination, but that's yeah. a, that's a conversation for another day. Uh, yes. you know, this, this only dealt with ECOA and the statute only says creditors shall not discriminate against applicants. Where What the CFPB is basing this on is it's one provision in the regulation that implements ECOA, which is called Regulation B. It was first promulgated by the Federal Reserve in the 70s after ECOA was enacted. But the CFPB, you know, when they were given authority over uh, ECOA, the CV restated this regulation, and this provision of this regulation basically goes a step further than the statute and says creditors can't discourage prospective applicants on a prohibited basis, so on the basis of race or ethnicity. And that's a step further, right? The statute only talks about applicants, but the regulation says prospective applicants. In our response to the investigation, we told the CFB, look, you know, you don't have authority for this. ECOA only talks about applicants. And if you sue, this, you know, this is our legal theory that, that we'll use. We'll, we'll say that um, you don't have statutory authority for this provision of the regulation. So you don't have authority for an enforcement action against Townstone. But the C- like I said, the CFB filed suit anyway in July 2020. And so we filed a motion to dismiss in the case soon after that that made that exact argument. Uh, you know, that the statute only talks about applicants and this regulation talks about prospective applicants and there's no statutory authority for that. Keep in mind that this is the first time that any lender has challenged this legal theory in court. The every other case was brought against the bank and all of the banks settled from the 90s, starting with Chevy Chase, to the case right before this case, which was Klein Bank in 2018. Um, all of those cases settled. And so this is the first time, this was the first time a lender was challenging this legal theory. And so when we filed our motion to dismiss, all of these other law firms, you know, big law firms in our area were saying, oh, well, the CFB definitely has a authority for this and, and Townsend's going to lose and telling us also behind the scenes you know, that, that, you know, you should get your client to settle and, you know, <laughs> CFB is going to lose. But the owner of Townstone is a very principled person, believes in the rule of law, believes in the First Amendment, right to free speech, and, you know, recognize, hey, you know, I was out there talking about political issues that matter to me, being, you know, somebody who lives in Chicago. I should be allowed to talk about where I live. CFB shouldn't be able to come in and mm-hmm. tell me I can't say historical facts about where I lived or, you know, the, or, you know, make statements in support of the police or, or whatever. Um, and so he believes in the, the you know, First Amendment as well. And so we, you know, we filed this motion to dismiss, which included this ECOA argument, you know, just getting into the law a little bit. It seemed to me when looking at a string of cases dealing with this restriction on requiring signatures from spouses under uh, the law, under ECOA, um, the regulation actually expands that restriction to include guarantors. That's a step further also uh, from mm-hmm. the applicants. And so I said, well, there's these cases that basically say the regulation can't expand this restriction on spousal signatures to guarantors because ECOA only applies to applicants. Let's use that legal theory in this case to basically say that the regulation can't expand Ban the boundaries of the statute to prospective applicants. The, re- the statute only applies to applicants. And so we cited to that string of cases. And again, this is the first time this legal theory has ever been used against this, against this redlining theory that the government's been 
hitting banks with since the 90s. And then we also made First Amendment defenses in the case, basically said, hey, this is political speech, even though it's from its statements on a, a radio show by Townstone Financial, corporations have the right to free speech under the First Amendment, under the Citizens United case, a recent Supreme Court case. And so we said that also this is what the CFB is doing here is content and viewpoint-based restrictions on speech. And that's that's actually, you know, that, that, mm. that doesn't withstand scrutiny. So those are our First Amendment arguments. And then we also made a Fifth Amendment argument saying that this whole provision in Reg B that says you can't discourage prospective applicants is so vague that it's void for vagueness. There's no fair notice to what's prohibited. There's no way that somebody could read that per, that statement, you shall not discourage prospective applicants to mean that you have to have a diverse LO staff, you have to yeah. market in particular types of media. It, there's no so. guidance as to what to do or not do to be within or outside compliance. Yeah, there's not even a guidance in the regulation about what's a peer lender or not. It's all right. you know, kind of made up by the regulators in informal guidance. And I'll tell you, if, you know, in practice, I've seen that the regulators don't even follow their informal guidance on what's a peer lender. So it's, you know, this is all just kind of made up Kafka-esque stuff here. Mm. And so we made those arguments. The CFB replied, actually, I should mention this because it's very interesting. The CFB's opposition to our motion to dismiss, their brief, said, look, we're not interpreting the definition of applicant under ECOA. What we're doing is using our general rulemaking authority under ECOA. And every of every consumer finance statute that the CFB has, basically every statute, has this general rulemaking authority that says CFB can issue rules that further the purpose of the statute or prevent evasion of the statute. And CFB is saying that's where this that's the statutory authority for this regulation about discouragement. It's, we're not interpreting the term applicant. We're just using our general rulemaking authority and and I said, well, that, that that doesn't make sense because their general rulemaking authority is furthering the purpose of the statute, which only applies to applicants. Right. Right? Even if you double down, yeah. it's still, <laughs> it's in a very tight window here. You're talking about applicants, not turnips, not yeah. people who have not applied, <laughs> not right. people walking by you as you're shouting on the street corner, applicants. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so I found some really great case law there's this one Supreme Court case that deals with this similar type of general rulemaking authority under the Bank Holding Company Act and another Federal Reserve attempt at a rulemaking under the Bank Holding Company Act where the Supreme Court said, hey, this general rulemaking authority doesn't permit the Federal Reserve Board to expand the boundaries of the statute. And I said, that's the exact same thing that's going on here with the CFPB and prospective applicants. And so I cited to that one case. There's other more recent cases actually dealing with the CFPB where district courts have said CFPB can't use its general rulemaking authority to expand boundaries of statutes. And so cited to a bunch of other cases and the court, I will say the court took a long time to decide, I think probably because there were so many arguments going back and forth in this motion to dismiss. The court took about two years from the time we filed our, actually over two years from the time we filed our initial motion to dismiss. But the court- Which surprises me because of how the court eventually came back. I don't see what the long time of deliberation was. So let's talk about what the court said, and then we can talk about it. That's, that's definitely a valid way of looking at it. I think the yeah. court basically based its decision on our main argument, 
in the case. So it, it didn't. The court didn't have to look at the First Amendment and Fifth Amendment constitutional arguments that we made. It looked at the ECOA statutory authority argument and dismissed the the CFPB's case with prejudice and said that you know under Chevron the court looks at the plain language, basically the language of the statute, and if that is unambiguous, then it doesn't defer to the CFPB's interpretation. And in this case, the court said the term applicant under ECOA is unambiguous. The plain language and the definition of applicant under the statute or somebody who's actually applied for credit. And so he doesn't, the the court doesn't defer to the CFB's regulation, which interprets ECOA to apply to prospective applicants. And so there's no claims about applicants in this case. And so the CFB doesn't have a a claim here. And so the court dismissed the CFB's lawsuit with prejudice. On the CFB's argument that this this regulation can be validly promulgated under the general rulemaking authority under ECOA, the court said no and cited to the cases that I cited to, including that one Supreme Court case that I mentioned, and said, look, you can't expand the boundaries of statutes with this general rulemaking authority. This general rulemaking authority can only come into play after you get past Chevron step one. So if there's an unambiguous term, if there's an, excuse me, an ambiguous term in a statute, we can look to the agency's interpretation of that. And there we can maybe look at the purpose of the statute. But if the terms of the statute are unambiguous, we don't get to this general rulemaking authority argument that the CFPB is bringing up. And so it really was a win for the rule of law, a win for the idea that agencies just can't go off and make their own law. They, you know, mm-hmm. It's a separation of powers issue. It's a constitutional issue. The Congress makes the law. That law is set in the statute. The agencies can't go and start interpreting unambiguous terms to make new provisions that are not supported by the statute. And so it's really a win for the rule of law. Because at the motion to dismiss stage, the court did not get into any of the facts of the case. And the court did mm-hmm. not get to the First Amendment or Fifth Amendment arguments, but this was Good old Chevron. Yes. Good old Chevron. (laughs) Good old Chevron difference. And we've talked about it on this podcast a couple of times. I want to refresh everybody's memory because not everybody lives down these weeds like you do daily and I do occasionally when there's new regulation. But did the judge actually include in the ruling the words, that's the end of the matter? I don't have the exact quotes of the ruling, but that's essentially what he said. Which is essentially quoting Chevron, right? Which is, you met Chevron, prong one. Chevron's a two-prong deal. And I, I, I want you to talk about Chevron a little bit because we know that it is in jeopardy too. And you're being humble, but I'm going to brag on you a little bit and reemphasize how important it was you prevailed with the Chevron argument because a lot of the other cases we're seeing involving the administrative state are saying Chevron may or may not be enough. We should change the standard to a substantial questions doctrine. And that's the basis for a lot of the things we see moving through the Supremes soon. But is there a way to explain the differences to people so that they understand our, not just our in the industry, but everybody's heavy reliance on Chevron to date this is a great and, question. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it, it's important for the listeners to know that this was pure Chevron. The court said the court approaches a, this inquiry as it must through mm-hmm. the two-step framework set forth in Chevron. It didn't it look to the major questions doctrine. It didn't look to any other types of analyses that it might under 
statutory authority. It just started and stopped with step one of Chevron. And as, yeah. as you know, we discussed, step one says if the statute's unambiguous, the court doesn't go further than that. And actually, that's that's basically what the court said. The court said that it need not move on to the second step of Chevron and it affords no deference to the CFPB's regulation. Yeah. And so it's pure Chevron. The major questions doctrine is something that could come up in in future CFPB mm-hmm. cases. I, I will say, I'll back up, because of the the court didn't rule on the motion to dismiss for about two years, the case actually started to go into discovery and the costs are starting to mount. It's really difficult for mm-hmm. a small company to mm-hmm. fight the government, right? It's, just, it's mm-hmm. a David versus Goliath battle. And because the court didn't rule for about two years, the costs were starting to mount. And so we worked hard to find the client uh, pro bono legal counsel to deal with these mounting costs because the client, you know, really, like I said, is very principled and wanted mm-hmm. to fight for for the rule of law and, and free speech. Um, so we found pro bono legal counsel in the form of Pacific Legal Foundation, PLF. Mm-hmm. And they've handled a number of Supreme Court cases. They handle administrative law cases and free speech cases. They're uh, essentially a, a pro bono libertarian civil rights firm. And they looked at this case and understood the important implications for separation of powers and the rule of law. And so they they joined the legal team when discovery was starting to, to, to start in this case and really took up the mantle here. And, and they submitted a great argument adding they filed the notice of supplemental authority adding a major questions doctrine argument but the court didn't end up ruling on that and i think that basically said you know we're not we're we're not looking at major questions doctrine here but other lawsuits are currently pending mm-hmm. against the CFPB now that have brought up major questions issues i think so, the payday lending one's going to be a big one of course the epa case for sure but the the one out of the fifth circuit and the ep and the uh, payday lending could go there couldn't it yeah, and currently, like I mentioned before, the CFPB is trying to expand its UDAP authority to include discrimination. Well, a bunch of the trades, Chamber, uh, Chamber of Commerce, and I think ABA filed a lawsuit against the CFPB saying you can't expand UDAP to include discrimination. They made a bunch of statutory authority and Chevron type of arguments, but they also added a major questions doctrine claim. And basically, to sum up major questions is is, is basically that if there is uh, an issue that has major political and economic significance, this judicial doctrine says that it's something that can't be decided by the agencies using like vague statutory authority. If it's a, such a major question, basically Congress has to speak directly to that issue before an agency can act. If it's such a major issue that Congress is not going to hide the authority to for an agency to act on it in kind of vague general rulemaking authority. And so um, I think major questions doctrine is valid here in this case for redlining theory because it does have major economic oh. significance. If, if the agencies yeah. are basically saying to the entire financial services industry under mm-hmm. ECOA, which as I mentioned, applies to all forms of credit, that creditors have an obligation to do all of these things, to market in all different types of media, to have diverse loan officer staff, to have a certain amount of 
business success with uh, minority populations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's a, a major uh, issue. Uh, you know, it has a lot of economic significance for the whole financial services industry. So I think if this case goes further, we could potentially see the courts rule on major question doctrine. But right now, this was a pure Chevron decision. The underlying questions here on a lot of this have to do with what should and can constitutionally the administrative world under the executive branch, where should their water's edge stop and where should Congress's water's edge stop? And there's there's a myriad of subtopics within that, including, hey, that means Congress, you're going to have to do your job, which they are currently incented not to do. So, there, I mean, there's a whole lot of practical and theoretical discussions here. But another key important one to understand is that some people who are arguing these matters take the position that, and, and go all the way back to James Madison on this one, that it, we're getting too many decisions, too many steps away from the voters, and it reduces a republic form of republic democracy form of government because you can't vote for the director of the CFPB or the think about a non-cabinet yeah. level job, right? So those those are some kind of some of the concepts and I know that it, people can just hear oh, well this sounds like a dismantling of the regulatory state and 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 I yes that's a concern. I mean that's a practical that's a pragmatic concern, right? If if we rolled too many things back, like the payday lending case contemplates, then how do we build something back up that doesn't take 30 or 40 years so that business can continue and life can continue during that time? So these are sort of the, did I did I sort of capture the, the teeter-totter arguments on this well, or is there something else we need to add? These policies, objectives of the government, I don't disagree with with it, right? If there's actual bad actors there that yeah. intend to discriminate, the CFB, DOJ should should go after them. If the government wants to though impose new affirmative obligations mm-hmm. on the industry, the entire financial services industry, not just mortgage industry, I think they need to do it not through these regulation by enforcement methods, right? To just try and sue a bunch of people, get a bunch of settlements so that the mortgage industry and the banks will just roll over whenever there's an investigation. I think the way that the government sees their settlements is that they count as precedent, right? Now, former director of Cordoba, when he was director of the CFE, was on the Hill and said that if compliance personnel and compliance uh, attorneys don't look to the CFB's consent agreements or settlement agreements essentially as law as what they shouldn't shouldn't do then that's that's malpractice in his view and so i think the the government definitely see sees their settlements as precedent and so they they see themselves as making law with these settlements and that's what makes regulation by enforcement work so well. They don't have to go through a rulemaking process. Rulemaking, public comment. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And they have banks that are just going to roll over. I would say there's probably valid reasons why banks settle. I mean, it's really hard for a bank, a depository institution, to fight 
the government, including their primary federal regulator, because they need their regulator to approve uh, lots of other business activities. So if they're fighting the government and their regulator on these crazy discrimination theories, that they're hindering their other parts of their business. And so it's typically, in a lot of ways, it seems rational for banks to just settle this, get get it out of the way so that they can have that merger that they're looking forward to, or, you know, make that investment that they want to get approval for. Or not have redlining permanently attached to the name of your bank. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Accused. Yeah. <laughs> Alleged. Exactly. Subtly. Nobody get, says that part. Yeah. Alleged redlining. It's just, oh my God, XYZ bank and redlining. Uh. Yeah, 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 ex- exactly. And so the banks typically just settle these. And so that's why this regulation by enforcement works. But here, you know, because Townstone was really, uh, and the owner of Townstone was so brave and strong-willed, to fight this, it's really a huge win for it's the industry. Matter. Yeah, because now it shows that hey, this theory actually, at least under ECOA, is really suspect, and it might encourage others to fight back. Now, like as I, as I mentioned, a lot of law firms have been hesitant to fight. I mean, like I said, even. When we first filed our motion to dismiss, a lot of other law firms were saying, oh, you'll mm-hmm. never win. You know, CFB definitely has a legal theory here, valid legal theory. Nobody and, could could run a five-minute mile either till somebody did. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. They might continue that approach because this case is only in the Northern District of Illinois. It's the only district court case, so it doesn't have a lot of precedential value. It's uh, also, there are other factors at play, like I mentioned, if there's a case against a bank, banks have other um, incentives to settle. And there's a lot of costs involved in in fighting the government. And there could be other facts at play, which encourage other even non-banks to settle. Um, So we might not see other institutions fight back, but hopefully this case, even without you know, there being a huge amount of precedential value here will encourage others to fight back. The other reason I mentioned the general rulemaking authority part of the court's decision and our arguments in the case is that I think that's also helpful for challenging the CFPB generally, because the CFPB relies on that general rulemaking authority all the time for lots of different rules and other activities. So I think the court's opinion on where the general rulemaking authority sits in Chevron, it could be helpful to others as well. And also, given that this is the only judicial decision on this redlining theory, I think if another lender were to challenge the CFB on it, I think another court would look to this, even though it's not precedential, but it, as as persuasive authority. So, uh, hmm, so that's interesting. Well, and I would think even though the venue is is not one of those blockbuster, traditionally blockbuster making venues, I do think it's noteworthy that you prevailed not in Texas, but in Illinois. I mean, I would think that would get some people's attention. Yeah, this isn't district court that you would say, oh, well, of course I ruled that way. And and mm. I think also, we, we haven't talked about this yet, but, you know, will the CFPB appeal is a question I've been getting a lot lately. And I think that mm. that the question of whether the CFPB will appeal is, is, it's hard to answer because the CFPB has reasons to appeal and also reasons not to. So the reasons to appeal is that, one, they want to use this legal theory against non-banks in the future, against banks. This is a, you know, racial equity and, and uh, fair lending are obvious, uh, obviously very important 
um, objectives of not just the CFPB, but the uh, the Biden administration at large. And, and so mm-hmm. the fact that the CFPB lost a case, a fair lending case, really is something that the CFPB would want to try and appeal. And it's definitely a, a black eye for the agency. But on the other hand, if they do appeal, there's a lot of risk because, you know, that that string of guarantor cases that I mentioned, the first of those cases was a case called Moran Foods. And actually, that was a Seventh Circuit case where the court in that case said that the, the Seventh Circuit said that they're not sure that the regulation can be uh, can expand the definition of applicant to include guarantors. And even though that actually wasn't part of the actual holding in the case, it was just dicta, so it doesn't, it doesn't have mm-hmm. precedential value, but it's still something that the district court cited to as persuasive. And I think the Seventh Circuit at large would also, I think that it looks like they would agree with the district court's interpretation and, and ruling in this case as well. And so they think the CFB has real risk of losing in the Seventh Circuit. And then if it goes to the Supreme Court, well, you know, I, I think the current makeup of the Supreme Court is really risky for the CFB now as well. Exactly. Yeah. And they have plenty of other battles. But so we'll while we wait and see what they do about appeal, um, do you think this decision will, with regard to other enforcement actions by the Bureau sort of in the same lane, do you think it will curtail them? Do you think they'll ramp them up wanting to call the question again somewhere else with a different fact pattern? Or do you think it'll be no change? This is a great question. I think that the regulators will not take their foot off the gas on this legal theory. I'm not seeing it. I have a number of investigations and exams on redlining at my firm right now, and we're not seeing that. Also, as I mentioned before, um, there's another statute out there, Fair, Fair Housing Act, that the DOJ and federal banking regulators can use. And that statutory language is slightly different from ECOA. So arguably, I'm not saying it does, or arguably it could support this redlining theory a little better. But I think that that that's really still a valid legal question. But I think it the fact that the statutory language is different from the language at issue in the Townstone case could could be ammunition enough for uh, banks or other non-banks that are facing these claims under the Fair Housing Act to settle. Also, there are state regulators and attorneys general out there that I mentioned. And, and this is just one case in a district court, and CFB mm-hmm. could be looking to bring this uh, legal theory, even if they're challenged, in more favorable jurisdictions so they can get some better precedent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Well, in the meantime, it's a big result. um, And, you know, you got to step closer on getting some clarity for people that are that are out there trying to make regulations work, trying to do the right things in the marketplace. Any clarification, uh, no matter how expensively it comes, is good. Uh, Very good. What else are you watching right now that has your antenna up? Yeah, as I mentioned, you know, fair lending and discrimination and racial equity are such high priorities for the administration and CFB generally. Um, I'm looking to see what they do with their expansion of UDAP to include discrimination. I think partly the reason they're doing that is so that they can go after 
service providers in transactions and not just the creditors. So, mm-hmm. you know, appraisal discrimination is something that's been talked about a lot lately. It's a focus of the administration and CFPB. But there are other service providers in real estate transactions, not to, not to scare your uh, um, title mm-hmm. insurance listeners. I'm, I'm glad you said it because, you know, I'm sure many people have been sitting out there while they're listening to this today thinking, okay, wait, I am not a lender, so... You know, that stuff doesn't apply to me. I don't have any Humda data to go to really to prove me innocent or guilty. But yet, speaking for title and settlement, we are part of the financial services industry now. So, you know, can can we get roped in on some things like this? Because we have a lender customer that sends us, let's say, X percent of their deals. And they haven't been, for example, marketing properly or they've denied some loan applications that they shouldn't have. That can sound a little crazy, but when you see some of these stretches out to try to make the world a better place, it's it's not hard to see other provider service providers getting caught up in this. Yeah, I, I think so. There's other theories, not just redlining, but pricing discrimination. We have a uh, pricing discrimination investigations at our firm as well. That's still a legal theory that's being used by the agencies, even mm-hmm. though it's kind of taken a, a backseat to redlining lately in terms of uh, the visibility. I think there's also disparate treatment in other forms, right? If you the term disparate treatment, that word treatment is important. I mean, how service providers or lenders treat um, applicants based on race or ethnicity, you know, could become an issue. So, you know, this, the regulators have even said, you know, the time to process an application, you know, if that's different mm. based on mm-hmm. race or ethnicity could be considered disparate treatment. So just sure. different treatment, pricing discrimination, there's all sorts of theories of discrimination that could be brought using UDAP against, against not just lenders, but all persons involved in the, you know, real estate related transactions, the um, mortgage transactions and the, and, and so the other issue is, you know, the CFB has a, a rule coming out soon called the Small Business Loan Data Collection Rule. It's under Section 1071 of the Dodd-Frank Act. And that is a rule that creates a, a Humda-like data set for small business loans. And that data set will include the race and ethnicity and and um, sex data like like the lenders are currently required to collect for mortgage loans for small business loan applicants. And and so what's what's going to happen is the CFB is going to turn and use the same redlining theory and other theories of discrimination in the small business loan space. So I think that that's another an, another foot that's going to drop here, and and we're we're probably going to start to see those types of exams and investigations start up once that rule becomes not just effective but Im- implemented and data starts being collected and reported. So I think and my guess is this is similar thinking of why you know we saw. Mm, latter half of last year, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce kind of mount up with the against the FTC on UDAP, right? Because it's so broad, inclusive. I think they're trying to say unfairness is what we make it, right? You know, it, it, so there's on this, this day. On this day. It could be so, a different unfairness next week. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, and so it's this really 
um, useful uh, tool for the CFPB to go after activity that it doesn't like that doesn't violate like a technical law. So mm-hmm. if I always describe UDAP as kind of like a sniff test, right? You know, if if something smells wrong, then it's at risk of being a UDAP violation. And and, and that's pretty much how the regulators use it. They go after things that they don't like. In this case, their legal argument to expand UDAP to include discrimination is that it's unfair that there's, uh, you know, substantial injury. It's not reasonably avoidable by consumers. And that's kind of the... The, the prongs of the, the important prongs of the definition in in uh, Dodd Frank and you know in, in prior precedent as well of what what unfairness is but the thing is Congress has never said oh well unfairness includes discrimination Congress has always had separate laws to address discrimination and then unfairness and so the you know the fact that CFB is saying well you know unfairness can now include discrimination discrimination a, is inherently unfair yeah so in some ways it makes some some sense but on the yeah, uh, other hand it's like Congress I think that's why it's a good major question issue Congress yeah. if they wanted unfairness to include discrimination, they they would have said it. They're not going right. to hide the ball on that issue. And and they've spoken about discrimination specifically in other contexts like ECOA and Fair Housing Act. So there's really good arguments for why unfairness can't be expanded by the CFB to include discrimination. Although when you when you look at what the CFB and actually FTC, because FTC has UDAP authority with 1A under Section 5 of the right. FTC Act. Uh, yeah. FTC has said the same thing, that unfairness can include discrimination as well. So um, I think they're, the the way they've got about describing how discrimination can be unfair kind of makes a logical sense. But I think as a legal matter, I think it's a, it's a bridge too far. Yeah, it's a little different hurdle when you look at it uh, from a legal perspective as opposed to yeah, that that argument. Which, but I understand why they make that argument, and that's that's why we have courts. We have people courts. use them. That's the other thing is that they, yes. a lot of people don't like what the CFPB does generally. CFPB, like I mentioned, has used its general rulemaking authority, general rulemaking authority, to go further than mm-hmm. the statutes in a number of scenarios. I mean, one example comes to mind is is its RESPA servicing rules, which have all of these loss mitigation procedures for borrowers in default. And, you know, they, mm-hmm. they've used it in other ways. And these things only get overturned if they get challenged, challenged. in court. Yeah. And so there's a lot of ways in which past safety rules could have been challenged, but they haven't been yet. And, you know, I'm not saying that the industry should go and challenge a bunch of CFPB rules now based on the Townstone decision, but it does add some some weight to arguments based on the, uh, the you know, the, the CFPB can't use its general rulemaking authority to expand the boundaries of statutes. Yeah, it's so important. Rich, yeah. we, we thank you very much. I love this discussion today and I could keep going, but for, to spare our listeners' ears, uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll go ahead and, and bring it to a close. And by the way, Separate but related. I don't think I've ever thanked you, and if I have, I haven't thanked you publicly for when you were at the CFPB, especially, but not exclusively, being so pragmatic by when we were coming in and meeting with questions about the rule and trying, we were trying to figure out as an inter- industry how to implement. And you, you always leaned into those discussions and sought to understand, and and you comported yourself in a way that you understood that we were trying to make the rule work. We weren't trying to fight the rule. I mean, that 
you know, <laughs> that ship had sailed. <laughs> yeah. And we were trying to f- make, figure out how to make it work. And you, you were an honest broker in those discussions. And I think you are a key reason why the TRID rule got implemented so smoothly in the title and settlement world, because you understood that we were trying to make it workable and keep things moving along. Like once it became effective, we didn't have a couple years to figure it out. We had to keep real estate moving along. And so it's been too long. I should have thanked you sooner, but I'm thanking you now. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate hearing that. I took my role to see if it be in, in part to... Um, to be that fact finder for the CFB to get that information from all all industries that would be affected by the trade role and and you know in interfacing with with you Mary and learning about how the, you know the the prototype disclosures would be used or the other mm-hmm. substantive provisions in the proposed rule would impact the industry I think was real was really important for the CFB those those facts are really important for the CFB to take in and so you know I also have to thank you for being such a good partner in that and, and being so helpful to the rulemaking process, I think that it just it made, like you said, made for a, a rule that was better for the public at large, both consumers and, and the industry to enable, without the industry, consumers aren't going to get loans, right? You're not going to get yeah. title insurance. <laughs> so we yeah. need the industry and we need the rule to operate efficiently and for the rule to be implemented efficiently as well. And so, you know, thank you to you for being so helpful and getting those facts in such a a clear way to me at the CFPB and others at the CFPB as well during the implementation phase. And and I think that hopefully as other issues come up and future CFPB rulemakings or new trade issues come up, as they do all the time, I'm constantly fielding trade questions, that there are people at the CFPB, I hope in the future, who are um, listening as well. I know that there's um, sometimes it's hard to get somebody's ear at this CFPB to listen to important issues as they come up. And so if there's, you know, any way I can help with that to to you or to your listeners in the future, please reach out. Super. Thanks, Rich, for breaking down this case and its repercussions for us. You do have a way of making the complex simple and easy to understand. So thanks for that. And we're all rooting for you. Until next time, listeners. Keep advocating for sanity. And like Rich, you might have to do it over and over again. But it's worth it. It matters. Because what you do really matters. Mm